Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. I love that song. And I love you. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're going to finish this chapter. We've been working our way through John. We're going to dip into the first part of chapter 16 this morning as we're spending this last year and a half, for the most part, working through the gospel of John. As you are finding the passage uh, in your own Bible, I'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word open in front of you. I want to tell you that I'm really thrilled to have a friend with me today. Joel Smith is sitting over there with his lovely wife, Gwen, and their beautiful family. Joel, just stand up, Joel, if you can. I know you got your boy in your, in your lap there. Joel and his wife, Gwen, live in Ellaville, Georgia, which is in south-central Georgia, where Joel is the pastor of Ellaville Baptist Church, and he and I have been friends for several years now. And I am so thankful for their ministry there and the work that they are doing in rural Georgia. Ellaville is a just up the road from Americus, Georgia. I think it's Schley County. Schley County, am I pronouncing that right? It's the home of Bill Harrison. Uh, and they're just doing a wonderful job there. So um, two things. I want you to pray for the Smiths, Joel and Gwen, and Ellaville Baptist Church. I'd love for you to meet them after church. If you have a heart for uh, small town ministry. Maybe you might bless them through more than just prayers, through maybe getting to know them, maybe even helping them financially. Or maybe you are a young person and this wonderful phenomenon that has been a strange consequence of COVID where you can work from home in your job, which is foreign to me, but apparently people do it and it's a thing. Hey, maybe you can spend a year or two of your life and, and relocate to Ellaville, Georgia and serve that church and work on your computer there. <laughs> I think they have internet in Ellaville. <laughs> and you could just work there and bless that church. This is the heartland of America. And I thank God for pastors like Joel and families like the Smiths who are doing a great work there. Amen. All right, well, let's pray for the Smiths. Let's pray for our time in this passage this morning and that God will meet us. And then we have the great privilege to see three new members of Crosspoint be baptized as a proclamation of the gospel. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for Joel and Gwen, their beautiful family and the, the beautiful family of saints there in Ellaville Baptist. Thank you for faithful churches like this scattered all across our country, places that maybe don't they get noticed on, uh, in national Christian magazines or websites places that don't have some sort of romantic appeal, but are really the, the heartbeat of our country. Thank you for his faithful ministry. Thank you for his friendship. I pray that you'd bless him. I pray that his sabbatical this summer would be a time of replenishment and refreshment to he and his wife and family, and I pray that their visit at Crosspoint would be a joy, would bear fruit for them and encourage them. Lord, thank you for this passage that we're going to look at today where Jesus instructs us, encourages the saints, his people, about how the world has hated him and it will hate us. Lord, we know this feeling increasingly in our day, so 
use our time in this passage to equip us, to make us more like Jesus, to strengthen us, to put steel in our spine so that we're not whiny, cranky, complaining Christians, but we're steel-eyed, we're bound for heaven, and we're here for a purpose. Help us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, just an observation before we get into this text. Um, I love the summer. I love summer weather. I love sort of the casual pace of life of kids not being in school. Um, and I think you do too. I, I, I think we all do that. Uh, sometimes a kind of, I don't know, a kind of quietness can sort of overtake us sometimes when we gather together on Sundays in uh, the summer. Um, I'm going to give you permission to just sort of shake off those heavy bands. Hey, listen, we gather one time a week, primarily on Sunday mornings on the Lord's Day. This is the Lord's Day. We are here to serve the Lord. Okay, we're going to dig into the text. I'm going to give you the best I got. Lean forward, open your Bible, and it's okay to say amen. Amen? Now, that's not a plea for you to help me out in a mediocre sermon. You be the judge of that, but let's dig into God's Word, okay? We live in an increasingly hostile culture. I think we understand that, most of us that have been alive for a little while. Things are not like they used to be. The main tenets of the Christian faith, I don't think were ever wholeheartedly accepted in our country, but they were at least tolerated, and now, increasingly, what Christians have believed for centuries is becoming what our culture would call hate speech. Now, this is nothing new to our brothers and sisters around the world. Many of them, people that we love and serve along with and partner and help financially and send people to, have for many centuries lived in cultures where the gospel is despised and where believers are dragged off to physical persecution. But we now in our country, in our setting, are facing this Probably like never before. What are we to make of this? What does the Bible have to say to us? What does this portion of John have to say to us? Well, as we've talked about for the past few weeks, we find ourselves in the middle of Jesus' last discourse, his farewell discourse to his disciples. So even though we have about six chapters left in John, we are about 24 hours out from the crucifixion of Jesus. And these chapters, John 13, really all the way through John 17 is one extended long teaching of Jesus where his public ministry has ceased. He's no longer out amongst the people. He's 24 hours away from being betrayed by one of his closest disciples. And he's spending these last 24 hours, spending this time pouring into those that are, he's closest to, that he's going to commission, who are going to be the apostles who will plant the New Testament church. And here in John chapter 15, on the heels of what Tyler spoke to us last week about how Jesus is telling him to abide in him, to be united to him, and that's where our fruitfulness comes. He transitions here in the second half of John 15 to encourage them and warn them about the hatred that they will experience. So here's what I want to do. Here's going to be our flow. We're just going to read a few verses and stop along the way. I have five observations or truths that I want to help wrap our minds around this text, and we're going to make application as we go, and then we'll end, and then we'll rejoice in the baptism of three sisters this morning. Let's start in John chapter 15, verse 18. This is Jesus speaking entirely through our text. He says to his disciples gathered together at the Last Supper, he says, if the world hates you, know 
that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So this leads us to the first truth or observation that I want us to see, and it's this, is that the world hates Jesus and will hate his people. That's basically what Jesus has said here in these opening verses. The world hates Jesus and will hate his people. I think this is obvious, but just to make sure, if you're not as experienced in reading the Bible, when, when John, the, the gospel writer here, is quoting Jesus, and he's using the word world, he's not talking about the physical sphere of the globe. He's, he's talking more metaphorically about this fallen system, this culture around us, this, this conglomeration of fallen people who are under the sway of the evil one. It's the, the culture, the, all of the, the people that are not trusting in Christ, that are governed by our enemy, our adversary, the devil. Ephesians chapter 2, I won't take the time to read it, but the first three verses of Ephesians 2 explain this well. It says that, that all of us at one time before salvation are part of this world and we're fallen, we're we're dead in our sins of the description of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. And we are under the sway of the prince of the power of the air, which is a reference to Satan, our adversary, and that we are all following the course of this world. And so we've said this many times, I've said this many times, is that there are really only two types of people in this world. There are those that are still in the world, dead in their sins, under the sway of the evil one, and those who have been born again, made alive by God, and are part of the kingdom of God. There is no in-between. You're either in the world or you are in Christ. And Jesus here is saying that this world, this fallen system of all these people that do not yet know him, this fallen world, isn't just neutral towards him but it hates him. And as a consequence, it doesn't only hate Jesus and his lordship and his authority, it also hates his people, which is us. He's speaking specifically to his disciples, but I will make the argument when we get to John chapter 17 at the end of this long discourse that everything that Jesus says in John chapter 13 through 17, he's speaking in context to his disciples, but I'm going to make the argument by what Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John 17, that all of it applies to all of his people throughout all the age. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us that the world hates him and it will hate his people. Why? Jesus gives us two specific reasons in the text why the world will hate us. First, in verse 19, it says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but you are not of the world. So the first reason that Jesus tells us that the world will not love us but will hate us is because we are not of it. And this gives us all, we could spend a whole bunch of time just talking about the implications of this, what it means to be a person who follows Jesus. Jesus is saying that he has left us in this world. Again, we'll get to that when we get to John 17, but that we are in this world, but not of this world. Implicit in this is that God intends for his people to be distinct. He has saved us. He's washed us. He's regenerated us. He's sanctified us. He's left us in the world but called us out of this world. And so the first reason why the world hates the followers of Jesus is because of their distinction from the world. They are not like the world and this angers the world. 
The world hates the light that shines through the people of God because of their distinction, because of their pursuit of the holiness that they're called to in Christ. Now, of course the church is not all that it should be. And of course there is still sin and hypocrisy in the body of Christ. But there is this underlying hatred of this desire for distinction and holiness and to live under the lordship of Christ that the world has towards the people of God and has had it from the beginning. We are seeing this, as I mentioned, increasingly in our culture. There's been a kind of warp speed of progression of this in America in the last, say, 10 years or so. Sinful lifestyles that have always, in a sense, just because we're citizens of this world and we have to live together, there was a kind of tolerance for. Now, the world wants the church to not only tolerate it, to coexist and just live in the same space with people, but the world wants the church to not just tolerate, but to affirm these things. And now, we're even seeing that the world is demanding not just our affirmation, but our celebration of these things. To the point now where many businesses are scared to not acknowledge lifestyles that in years past would have clearly been outside of the norm of just what was accepted in culture for fear of being canceled by the culture. So do you see within the span of a decade, we've gone from tolerance to affirmation to a demand for celebration. Now friends, this, this is a warp speed of intensity, of hatred that the world has for what Christians have historically believed. Now, I want to say, and I think we all understand this, that at times Christians have postured themselves in unhelpful ways. There's no doubt about that, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But I think that many Christians struggle with a kind of, a kind of Stockholm syndrome, a kind of, we're so shell-shocked by this rapid aggressive antagonism of the world hating us, that, that we're, we're almost kind of apologetic in our stance towards the culture for believing just simple, clear, biblical truths. And what I mean by Stockholm Syndrome, I know that anybody over the age of, or under the age of 40 probably has no idea what that is, but the stock, there was this and I barely know what it is, but I, I think I do. I'm sure I'll get corrected if I don't. But in the early 70s, there was this bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden. Is Stockholm in Sweden? Anyway, I'm getting lost in the details. Where the cap, they took some, they took some hostages for an extended period of time. And as a way of coping with their captors, after they were released, these hostages had a difficult time indicting or really saying anything negative about their captors because they had psychologically, just to get through their, this turmoil, started to kind of ingratiate themselves to the bank robbers. And this has become a psychological phenomenon called the Stockholm Syndrome, where people that live under a kind of captivity just out of a survival instinct start being strangely sympathetic to their oppressors. And I think in some sense, in some sense, that's happening in, in some Christian circles today. 
that we are so, we're getting so used to being the cultural bad guy that we're just sort of apologetic. We're just, we're just always apologetic about what we believe about human sexuality or about God as the creator of life. And that's one of the burdens that we have on doing this midweek fellowship series where we're looking at culture and ethics. And Robert did a wonderful job of starting us off last Wednesday about how showing us how over the course of the last century the authority for human beings has really moved from the outside world that we, had to, we were sort of subject to to now the modernity, the, all, the, all the industrial revolution has caused us to be able to control our world to now the authority for mankind rests in us and the greatest authority in the world is my feelings and you can't ever go against my feelings. And this is a fallen world and it's a fallen mindset and it's a mindset that hates the authority and the lordship of Christ. And it hates us. So Jesus says, that's why the world hates us, because you're not of this world. And secondly, because I chose you out of this world. Jesus chose us. The world hates grace. The the world loves the false God of self-righteousness. The world hates it when people who have no business having their lives changed by the glorious, sweet, free, unmerited grace of Christ. The world hates it when people like that receive the grace of God and get their lives together and glorify him. The world hates it because it challenges their false God of self-improvement and self-righteousness. And so the world hates the distinction of the church that believes what the Lord Jesus Christ has said we must believe and follow, and it hates the gospel of grace. So what are we to make of this? Just one little theological point about if Jesus is hated, then we will be hated too. Well, this is because we are united with Christ. We are one with him. And this is the essence of the gospel of saving grace. It just makes sense. It follows that if Jesus is persecuted, if he is hated, then those that are in him by salvation will also be hated as well. Listen to what Colossians chapter 1 says about what has happened to you if you are a believer in Jesus. And I want you to make the link between the doctrine of salvation, what has happened to you and the consequences of your salvation, and the fact that as a consequence of that, you will be hated by the world just as Jesus is hated. Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So something spiritual has happened here. You you weren't beamed up to the starship enterprise physically, right? But what has happened is you've been transferred, even though you're still alive, you're still living here on this earth, you're still a citizen of America or whatever earthly country that you're a part of, you're still living, but spiritually, salvation has transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. So you're no longer part of this world. You're no longer dead in your sins. You're no longer following the course of this world, but you've been transferred spiritually. You've been made alive, and you've been made a citizen of heaven, even though you still have life to live here on earth. Paul 
extrapolates this further on an even personal level in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3. This is a description of salvation. He says, for you have died, meaning your old life, your, your old nature, your old sin. You have died. You've died to your old master. You've died to the prince of the power of the air. You've died to the world. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So you're united with Christ in the Lord. And then he says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, one of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible. This is a verse to memorize. Paul says this, For I have, and this is a description of the Christian life. This is all of us, regardless of how mature you are or how spiritual you feel. If you are born again, if you're trusting in Christ, this verse describes you. And this is why the world hates you. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, the death that Jesus died on the cross we were with him, in him. He bore all the penalty for all of our sins. He took the punishment for us, and we were with him in a sense on that death. So all of the punishment that should have been ours for our sins, Jesus died for us on the cross. For I have been crucified with Christ. He goes on, now therefore it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, I have a new life, a new head, a new master, a new heart, and it's Christ who lives in me. He's resurrected me, just like he didn't stay dead on the cross and in the tomb, he rose again. I have been raised with Christ if I'm trusting in him, and the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So friends, this is a description of the essence of the gospel. If you are trusting in Christ, this is what it means to be a Christian. Christ died on the cross for your sins, took all of the punishment, removed it as far as the east is from the west, satisfied it, drank all of damnation dry for you, rose again in victory over sin, death, and the grave, made you alive, and therefore caused his death to be your death, satisfying your sins, and he rose again, gave you a new heart, and he lives in you through his Holy Spirit, and now you're his, and he is yours. That's what it means to be a Christian. So you're, you're Christ. He's yours. You're in him. We're part of the body of Christ. And we are indistinguishable in that sense spiritually from Jesus. That's the state of the Christian. That's the gospel. And friends, by the way, if you were here this morning and you've never really heard it like that, maybe you've heard of Christianity as just being a kind of set of ethics that you have to accept to try and do better. That's not the gospel. You have been taught a false gospel. The gospel of grace is that you're dead in your sins. There's nothing you can do to merit yourself before God, but God in his kindness makes dead hearts alive. And if you're hearing that and you're realizing that, I think it's evidence that God may be doing that to you. So what do you do? Well, you, you let the Spirit, the Spirit's going to work on you. It will make you alive. It will give you eyes. It will give you the gift of faith, whereby then you trust in Jesus. So what are babies supposed to do when they're born? Breathe, right? What did the baby have to do with its birth? Nothing. Something happened to the baby. It's born. It comes out. It breathes. That's how the new birth works. You're dead in your sins. God makes you alive. He gives you a new heart. He gives you faith. You place it in Jesus, and you are saved. Friends, maybe that's happening to you even right now. Don't, don't th overthink it. Don't think about what you must do to please God. 
Trust in Jesus. Turn away from yourself and trust in him. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, Paul says, not your determination, not your self-will. And so, what's the application of this gospel is that we're in Christ. And if the world hates Jesus, then it hates everything that is his. And what are you if you're a Christian? You're his. And that's what Jesus says next in verses 20 and 21. Let me speed along. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So this leads us to the second observation truth is that God's people should not be surprised by this persecution. And this just follows along a consequence of what we just said about the gospel. If they persecuted Jesus, they will persecute us because what it means to be a Christian is to be in Christ, to be united with him by faith. Notice the simple and clear logic of Jesus. He says, I'm a master, I'm your master, you're my servant, and as my servant, you should not expect better treatment than me. We all understand this on every level in virtually every human relationship. If they're going to criticize the master, they're going to criticize people underneath him. And that's simply what Jesus is saying. But strangely, we have flipped this logic, have we not? In much of American Christianity, we flipped it upside down and we have somehow subconsciously even maybe deemed that God is there to serve us, that we are the master and he is the servant. And we've turned the gospel of grace into a demand that God meet our needs after salvation. And he's a kind of genie in a bottle that if we rub just the right way or if we say the right prayers, if we do the right things, then God somehow is obligated to give us a comfortable life. And friends, that's the absolute opposite of what Jesus is saying. I'll never forget how we, we planted this church 17 years ago, and we used to meet out in the old Mountain Hill schoolhouse, and there was this dear sister that uh, was coming to the church in those early years of Crosspoint, and I remember talking to her after one service one day out there at the old schoolhouse, and she's a sweet soul, loves the Lord, devoted follower of Jesus, but in several conversations with her, it became obvious to me that she, up to that point, had just kind of bought into a kind of view, a false view of the Bible and our relationship with the Lord, whereby she thought that the Lord was really there to serve us and to make our lives more comfortable and more pragmatic and more functional. And she was going through a difficult struggle at the time. She was, in a sense, in her context, going through a hard time and suffering. There's no doubt about that. And as I was trying to encourage her in the Lord at the end of this service one afternoon, She looked at me, and I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, as I told her that Christians are sometimes called to suffer, and this makes us more like Christ, and she said, in all sincerity, she said, but I thought Jesus suffered on the cross so I wouldn't have to. And I said, sister, Jesus suffered on the cross to bear the wrath of God for you. 
Jesus suffered so that there will be no more penalty for your sins. But to think that Jesus' work on the cross somehow secures some sort of name it and claim it, if we just have enough faith, life of comfort or success or pragmatism here in this life is a complete misunderstanding of scriptures. Now, of course, I didn't say all that to her right then. Don't think I'm a monster. I was just just as tender as I could be. But friends, do you subtly believe that too? Sometimes we're shocked at the world around us and we're, it just causes us to be angry. And I think the unrighteous anger of some believers actually causes, it gives the world an excuse for their hatred of us. And it all stems from us really misunderstanding and have really unbiblical expectations of the Christian life. Because we're shocked. We're, we think that we grew up in Norman Rockwell's America where everybody should, you know, be cute on a painting and have a nice house and the trees are always the beautiful fall colors. And any time, any time that's threatened by government or some sort of cultural institution, we absolutely lose our minds and we basically become Christian chicken littles where the sky is always falling. And what do we do when we get like that? We get angry at the world and we basically lie about the hope of the gospel. We communicate to the world that we believe the God that we serve is there to make our lives as American citizens better. When that's not the case, Jesus is saying that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Now, friends, do not misunderstand me. I don't have time to answer a bunch of angry emails this week. I think we should be good American citizens, and I think we should do our best to bring good civil order. And I, too, am angry at much of what's going on in our country. But to the degree that we act shocked and can't believe that pagans hate Jesus... Friends, we, we, we lie about the hope of the glory of heaven if we act like this life is all that there is. Jesus is saying that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Well, let's keep going. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. So this is a little tricky. What's Jesus saying in here, here in verses 22 through 24? Well, first, let me give you the, the third truth that I, th- I think is evident here is that Jesus is telling us, ultimately, that to reject Jesus is to reject God. But before we unpack that briefly, let's just make sure we understand what Jesus is saying here. I think he's zeroing in basically on the Jewish Christian leaders at this point, and he's saying that these Jewish people, these leaders, have seen these works that I've done. And he's saying in verse 22, if I hadn't come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is not contradicting much of the rest of the Bible. He's not saying that the people that he came to in the first century and in Israel were somehow sort of spiritually neutral and weren't fallen. That's not the case. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 that all of us 
have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what, what is Jesus saying here? He, I think Jesus is saying that there's a kind of special guilt. There, there's a kind of intensity to the rejection of Jesus that puts a person, in this case the first century Jewish leaders, in a particularly spiritual, precarious position because Jesus isn't just the Old Testament pointing forward to the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the dividing line. He is the pinnacle of the glory of God in human form. So although rejecting the scriptures and rejecting the word of the apostles in the decades to come and rejecting faithful biblical preaching in our day and faithful scriptural truths in our day will put a person at odds with God and damn them to hell in a much more intense way, Jesus is saying that I am the dividing line and I have come, I personally am preaching to them, God in the flesh, and to reject me is to reject God personally. That's what he says in verse 23. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. And Jesus becomes the clarifying center of Christianity, of the Scriptures. He must be primary. He must be central in our faith. And when he is... It will rouse the hostility of the world. Just think, about, just think about the way our culture talks. They will celebrate an athlete or a movie star or an actor or something like that that sort of gives a general ambiguous nod to a certain spirituality. But anytime you mention Jesus specifically, the name of Jesus, there's, a, there's, an, there's an anger that is roused. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You can't separate a kind of general deism with me. Whoever hates me hates my Father. He personally has come and he's indicted these people and they are especially guilty of sin because they have rejected Jesus. Well, how do we see this in, in our, our culture today? Again, I mentioned it. We just kind of see a fluffy, non-imposing, impersonal God that some people will give a kind of nod to, to sort of signal their spirituality to the world. And that's a very non-threatening view of spirituality. But the moment you talk about Jesus, the moment you talk about that the only way you can come to be reconciled to your creator God is through Jesus, by repenting of your sins, by following his lordship, by obeying everything that he says in his word, that's when the world will start to hate you. About 15 years ago, there was this Christian this sociologist, I'm not sure if he was a Christian or not, but his name was Christian Smith, is Christian Smith, and he wrote a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And I don't think this applies just to American teenagers. I think it applies to really many Americans. And this, he, he put forward this concept of moralistic, therapeutic, deism, which is kind of like the default religion of our culture, even amongst many people who think that they're Christians. And there's four tenets of this kind of false view of living for or knowing God. And those, those four tenets are that basically God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught by the Bible and most world religions. The second tenet is that the goal of the, of, of the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. The third tenet is that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. 
And then the fourth and maybe most important tenet of this moralistic, therapeutic deism, which is a false religion that often masquerades as Christianity, this fourth tenet is that good people go to heaven when they die. Friends, all four of those are false. But if you say just enough of that, you will get accepted as a Christian. And if you go beyond that and you talk about the lordship of Jesus and the exclusivity of Christ and how he is our master and we must trust in him and now he gets to dictate how we love our lives, live our lives, friends, the world will hate us. And that's what Jesus is saying. Verse 25, just let's keep going. Verse 25, but the word, now Jesus says, the word that is written but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. And he's going to quote Psalm 69, verse 4 here, where it says, they hated me without a cause. What is Jesus doing here? He's taking a psalm, Psalm 69, in the Old Testament, and he's applying it. It's written about David, from David, about his life, that people hated him without a cause, and he's applying it to himself. And so what is Jesus saying here? He's, he's saying that the Old Testament was a shadow that points towards him. And ultimately, he's saying that even though the world hates him, even though the world will hate Christians, and he's preparing his disciples for this, he is signaling to them that this has been written in the law centuries before, and it must be fulfilled, which leads us to this fourth truth, is that God has ordained that all of this persecution will happen. Nothing that is happening to us right now, nothing that's happening through the course of human history is a surprise to God, but it's all, in some mysterious sense, has been ordained and arranged by him. The historic confessions of the faith tell us that nothing happens outside of his orderly arrangement. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith from the 1600s says that God, in a mysterious way, though never being culpable for sin, never being the author of sin, ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Friends, what's the application of this truth before we finish is that nothing that you are going through, will go through, or have gone through happens to you by chance or outside of the good fatherly will of God to include whatever persecution any of us are facing. A couple months ago, I spoke to an Indian pastor friend of ours who was dragged off to a police station roughed up a little bit, threatened about his church meeting. And I spoke to him over the phone through this wonderful app where you can just call people all around the world for free. It's amazing the technology that we have today. And I tried to encourage him in this truth that, brother, the Lord knows nothing that you're facing is outside of God's plan and sovereignty for your life. And that is true for us as well. Well, let's finish this last section here, verse 26 of chapter 15. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So Jesus is transitioning now from warning them about the hatred that they will face to reminding them that the Holy Spirit is coming and will fill them and will be with them and he will bear witness about me. And verse 27, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16, verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. So Jesus knows that Christians, when they live in tumultuous times, especially what the disciples are going to face in the coming decades, will shake their faith, and he is wanting to warn us so that we do not fall away. 
verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when the hour, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. What does he mean by their hour coming? When it seems like the world is winning, when it seems like everything's going against God's people, when their hour, the world's hour comes in a sense, just remember that I've told you that all of these things will come to pass. Which leads us to the fifth and final truth observation is that the Holy Spirit has come to help his people be a witness through it all. Now, friends, friends, praise God, we don't, we don't necessarily yet anyway face what our Indian pastor brother friend faced being dragged off to a police station to, uh, to speak about why the church is gathering. But we in our own way are facing increasing hostility and will be hated and persecuted by the world. And what is Jesus telling his disciples and what is he telling us? That there's a purpose in all of this. He's given us the Holy Spirit so that through it all, we might be a witness. This has a purpose, so that we show the surpassing worth of Christ to the world. And here's the lie of the false prosperity gospel or the seeker-sensitive gospel or the pragmatism gospel that has gripped much of the American church is that that has wrongly taught us that the world will see Christ through our earthly blessings when actually the Bible goes the opposite direction, that the world will see Christ in us as we persevere through this, showing the world that there's something better than earthly blessings, but the heavenly hope of being with Christ forever. And the Holy Spirit will help us do that. So what type of Christian, what type of church will produce people who live like this. Not ones that want to accommodate culture and apologize for believing what's best for humanity, that you're a man or a woman and that you should marry either a man or a woman. And if you marry, and that the only faithful expression of biblical sexuality is between one man and one woman in marriage. Or that God creates all life. And that he is the author of all life, no matter the circumstances. And that for us to think that we can play God and take life is an affront to our creator. So what type of Christian, what type of church will produce people who endure this persecution faithfully, not as angry Christians whose comfort is threatened, but as Christians who know that their hope is in heaven and want to be a witness because the Holy Spirit has been given to help us endure, not ones who want to accommodate the culture and want everyone to be like us because we know, not want us to become like everyone else because we know that the world needs something more than just us agreeing with him. It needs the hope of Christ. The type of churches and Christians that will be faithful witnesses in this time of persecutions are not ones that see the Christian life as mere principles to live a more personally fulfilling life. 
it won't be ones who are constantly shocked at and angry at the world because their way of life is threatened. Rather, the type of Christians and churches that this world needs is sober-minded, clear-headed, eyes wide open Christians who know what their master endured, who know that they are called to in some way, depending on their circumstances and context, to do the same, who know that this world is ultimately not their home. So they live on mission, enduring hatred, holding up Christ, making their lives about something more than fitting in or their own comfort. May we be these type of people May we be this type of church. And friends, that's exactly what baptism is in part meant to display. Where these three sisters are coming to give testimony that they've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. I'm with Christ and I'm willing to live the life for Christ no matter what the world may do to me. Let me pray. Lord, help us now to take these words of Jesus and be fortified by them. Make it like smelling salts under our lazy nostrils, under our complaining nostrils. Make it like spiritual ammonia that makes our vision clearer, that clouds out the fog in our heads and helps us see what it means to be a Christian in a world that hates us. And Lord, ultimately, remind us that there is more joy in living for Jesus. Lord, help us. And as we see these baptisms, Lord, let us celebrate the beauty of the gospel. And Lord, finally a word. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone in this room, maybe somebody who's struggling with some deep desire in their heart, maybe even struggling with some issue of sexuality, or maybe they're struggling with with the recent abortion ruling and maybe they've interpreted this message as as a kind of antagonism towards the things that are going on in their heart or mind or things that they believe. Lord, would you would you help them realize that this church that you is a safe place for them to ask questions, for them to hear the good news. But part of what makes it safe, Lord, is the truth, the truth of your lordship, the truth of your authority. Lord, for any in this room that might be wrestling with that, let them hear that. Lord, let them come to Christ. Lord, help us now. Celebrate you in Jesus' name. Amen.